Hello and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk About by Kangaroo Minds. I'm Vedika and our topic for today centers around understanding psychological forces. To have this conversation with us today, we have with us none other than Dr. April Natural. Dr. April is the Assistant Vice President of National Programs at Vibrant Emotional Health. She has been a traumatic stress specialist for over 35 years and has a history as a mental health care administrator and a clinician specializing in responses to traumatic events. Post 9-11, she led the New York mental health disaster response to the World Trade Center disaster. And over the past two decades, she has provided disaster and traumatic care responses and trainings throughout the US and internationally. She has also been instrumental in the setting up of the National Suicide Prevention Helpline in the US, as well as the Disaster Distress Helpline. Before we begin our conversation today, we would like to put out a trigger warning for our audiences. If at any point during this conversation, should you find yourself feeling triggered or distressed, we urge you to take a step back and look after yourself. Should you need any additional support resources, you can also find them on our website. And now without taking up much time, let's dive in to hear more from her. Dr. April, welcome to the episode. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Vedika. It's my privilege to be with you, and I appreciate that the audience is paying attention to this subject. No, I'm really glad that we're able to have you know you for this conversation because I know the work that you know you've done not just you know right now in current situations, whether it's been you know with the Afghan refugees or with the Ukraine situation, but also from the time since 9/11. So I think you know you're the ideal person to have this conversation with. Unfortunately, I have too much experience with this, Vedika, but you know, as we've talked about before, um, understanding what actually happens in the field can really help us to train others in what to expect so that they can respond as appropriately as possible to the specific needs of the population they're caring for. So again, I, I appreciate your giving me this opportunity to speak with you at Kangaroo Minds. No, I'm really glad, as I said, to have you. And I'm not going to take up much time because I know you have a lot going on as well with everything that you're doing at Vibrant and all the trainings that you've been involved in. So, you know, just to start off our conversation, I wanted to ask you that, you know, how would you define sort of the psychological first aid training and, you know, who would you say could take part in this? Okay, so let me explain as best I can that psychological first aid is really a set of actions, eight different components as we refer to them, that can help guide behavioral health and other responders as to how to interact and support people through a traumatic stress event, whether it's a natural disaster like a hurricane, flood, tornado, ice storms, or a human-caused event like mass violence events, accidents, uh, or other large-scale events. It's considered modular, meaning that the components can stand alone so that you don't have to go through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and you don't have to go through them in that order. You can decide what works for that particular individual uh, or family or community that you're working with. And PFA actually does apply to every population. We've tailored versions that are very specific to children, to responders. Uh, we certainly, we've looked at how to address this issue in underdeveloped countries, these issues in underdeveloped countries. We've tailored a particular model to humanitarian aid workers who address the needs of refugees. So it really can be applied to any audience, as long as it's tailored to meet that specific audience needs. Right. So what would you say are some of, you know, the guiding principles of psychological first aid? So the guiding principles really have a lot to do with some of our basic emergency response principles, which mean that we look at what our human beings needs first. So this idea that we have a need for a sense of safety and security, right? Shelter, food, clothing, taking care of our children. I hear survivors say all the time that talking about your emotional needs is a luxury. 
when first what you need to do is make sure that you can take care of your family, that you're going to survive and that you're going to be safe. So our principles really look at establishing safety and a sense of security, even if the area isn't secure. How do we help people to gain a sense of security? Um, to connect restorative resources. So that means really to access the community. Communities can take care of themselves better than anyone else can when they come together, when they pool their resources and they try to restore what those resources are so that you might have mass shelter instead of individual homes or individual shelters. You share what food is available. You gather in water in places where you can access water, food. Um, so it's this connection to restorative resources. And then it's reducing the stress-related actions. When you're in an acute uh, distress because of a traumatic event, you can often be activated over and over again. It's, it's like when an earthquake's aftershocks happen, right? Anything can remind you of the trauma. And so you wanna be able to teach survivors how to reduce that, those stress-related reactions so that they're not constantly jumpy or having panic attacks or hyperventilating or having rapid heartbeat or shaking or crying or not able to function. Uh, and then we want to teach some coping skills. Some people already have them. We see this in many of the older adult population. They've been through different traumas before. They know what coping skills work for them. Other people don't know. And so we want to, to foster adaptive coping. We want them to be able to help themselves so that if we can teach them these skills, then they know how to manage so that every time something happens, they don't need someone from outside themselves to be able to help. And then enhance whatever their natural resilience is. You know, we have survived thousands of years of trauma, whether it's running away from the saber-toothed tiger or saving ourselves from floods or uh, people who are dangerous. We have the skills uh, to be able to take care of ourselves. And so we want to stress in responders that that it's really better to help people learn how to address their own needs and learn what their natural resilience is. You may be very good at taking care of children. And so in, in an emergency, you may be in a shelter and, and that's the job that you do. Another person may be good at rebuilding. And so we wanna utilize whatever skills people have. It's what we call empowerment, right? Giving people this message that they can help themselves and each other do it collectively and build on each of the strengths that everyone in the community has to be able to restore a sense of community and functioning after a traumatic event. So I think it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned that, you know, PFA sort of looks at also providing people with their basic needs. So almost like in a way, you know, going according to the Maslow hierarchy of, you know, giving, ensuring that people have their physiological needs and sort of safety needs met before you can start looking towards, you know, the more higher order needs or addressing their emotional health issues. But, um, you know, coming, just stemming from, you know, talking about emotional health issues, a lot of times we see that, you know, people tend to use the term psychological first aid and mental health first aid very interchangeably. And I know like, you know, you and I have had this conversation and we both know that they're actually two very different programs. And there are two very different approaches towards helping someone as well. So, you know, could you throw a bit of light on, you know, what is the fundamental distinctions between the two of them? Yes, thank you, Vatican. I, I appreciate your pointing out these, these differences as we talk about the answers to these questions. The difference between psychological first aid and mental health first aid is very important. And I'm so glad you asked the question because the fundamental difference is that mental health first aid teaches anyone from professionals to the everyday person who is, doesn't know anything about mental health, how to identify someone who might be in a mental health crisis, meaning someone who has a major depressive disorder or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, and that's what we call you know, pathologizing. It's, it's recognizing that someone has a mental illness. With psychological first aid, our key is non-pathologizing. 
because what we know is that when these traumatic events happen, we have reactions that often look like a mental illness, but they 95% of the time or more, they aren't a mental illness. They are very short-lived, acute stress reactions that are very likely in 90% in of the population, they will dissipate in a you know, very short time, 30 days or, or less. Some people take a little bit longer, but and, and they might take a long time to dissipate completely, but we know they start to dissipate quickly with good, good coping skills, which we'll talk about, and good social supports. Um, and acute stress responses, though, can look like a mental illness. Mm -hmm. There are many examples of large-scale disasters where community members look psychotic, literally, whether they are trying to feed a dead baby or walk around in the freezing cold not recognizing they don't have clothes on. They can look psychotic. They can look delusional. But that really is a temporary a short-lived reaction that most of the time will dissipate in a fairly reasonable amount of time with or without help from anybody else. But generally with good social supports and with some good coping, they will dissipate easier. So that is the primary difference. And so they are used in different ways. Psychological first aid should be used in the immediate aftermath and it can be used later on as well of somebody who's been severely traumatized or in a major emergency or disaster. Mental health first aid can be used at any time in any community trying to identify and help people who may have a mental illness. So in that regard, you know, just would you say that, you know, psychological first aid is more sort of proactive in the sense that it's an immediate response almost to somewhere mitigate, you know, the trauma from manifesting into a full-fledged mental illness, whereas, you know, mental health first aid is more reactive and based on the individuals showing certain symptoms. Correct. That's absolutely correct. Um, and, and we know, too, that, you know, some of these reactions that, that people might have after a particular event, they, they might go on for a while. But what we generally hear from people is that they will just start to dissipate. At least we want to know that people are at least on a recovery path, right? They may be moving slowly, more slowly than another, but at least we know they're on a recovery path. And the research is very clear. From natural disasters, about 90% of the population will do well on their own without help from others. The other 10% are at risk for developing a mental illness so that they might not even. Um, and that after a human-caused incident with intent to harm, like a mass violence incident, the number drops to about 80%, but that's still the majority of the people will get better on their own. The other 20% are at risk. So with other factors, they may or may not develop a, a, a bereavement disorder, uh, a depression or anxiety-like disorders such as PTSD. But truthfully, even in the large-scale events that we've seen in different parts of the globe over the past 20 years, the numbers actually haven't changed. That about 5 to 8% of people can develop PTSD, about 5% of the population um, depression, and then maybe around one to 2% other types of disorders. And so it's really interesting to see that in the immediate aftermath, you'll see some studies where they'll go into a population that's been highly affected by a severe disaster. And they'll, they'll say 40, 60% of the population is showing signs of PTSD. But the real issue is that three to six months later, if you do that same survey over again, you will see the numbers have dropped dramatically and wind up getting to be around the national average that we see when there isn't a disaster. So that's interesting, you know, and you know, you've been involved in, you know, providing as well as guiding disaster relief from the time of 9-11. And, you know, in recent times, we've seen that, you know, whether it's climate change leading to, you know, more natural disasters or whether we've seen the refugee crisis very recently in both Ukraine and Afghanistan, and we've also had, you know, a lot of, especially in the U.S., a lot of gun-related violence happening as mm -hmm. well, especially when it's like, you know, in Uvalde, Texas. So, you know, do you think the need and the importance of being trained in BFA has sort of increased in view of topical events? 
we absolutely see the need for PFA to increase because we want to, as you said before, Vedika, we want to mitigate the development of mental health disorders. And we know too from the research that if people think they're doing poorly, they'll do worse. So if they run around after one of these incidents saying, I have post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. automatically, even if they don't know quite what that means, but because they're upset, they're sad, they're angry, they're shocked, they're having all kinds of reactions. And if they start to think I have a mental illness, they will do worse. So the whole idea of psychological first aid is to help people to understand their reactions, understand that they are common and likely not a mental illness. And that again, with time, good social supports and good coping, they can get back to doing what they used to do, get back to their lives, be able to function and, and even begin to have joy again, even after they've experienced these horrific events. Right. So, you know, could you just throw a little bit of light on, you know, how an understanding of PFA, I know you've briefly mentioned a few aspects on how it helps individuals, but, you know, how can it help make a difference to communities at large who've been affected? So there are many things we hear from community members that are helpful to them. And one of the main things that I hear over and over again, Vedika, is that people want to understand what's happening to them. So we will often go in and have a community meeting or a town meeting and say, yes, this is awful, this is horrific, and people are having some severe negative mental health responses, and that may go on for a while. But what we also know is that we expect those things to happen after this type of a horrific event, and it doesn't mean you have a mental illness. Mm -hmm. That things like headaches, stomach aches, sleeplessness, agitation, uh, um, memory, forgetfulness, that, that some of these things that they wouldn't normally associate as a response to a traumatic event are actually very common responses. And so people will say, oh, I didn't know that, you know, or they don't associate their symptoms with the event. And they do start to think there's either something physically or mentally wrong with them. So understanding that these things do happen to most people who are involved in a disaster makes them feel a little more secure and have hope that they can recover. And so we hear from people, that's really good to know. Now you used another word earlier that I'm going to, to make a little bit of a switch to. You used the word triggering and the gun community in the US has asked us, the um, re recovery, excuse me, the victim recovery community has asked us to try and get away from gun language. Um, so we're trying to use the word activating where the negative emotions might be activated by a memory, the, a smell, the sound, the talking about the incident or the time frame, maybe getting to the first year since the event has happened. So people need to know that when they are activated by memories of the event, that they can have some of the same severe symptoms that they had at the time of the event. And it doesn't mean they're not getting better or that they can't recover. It just means that their cells, their brain cells, their memory has been activated and it brings the memory forth again. And you hear this from soldiers, right? They say, I can see it in front of me, I can smell it, I can hear it. Um, but to know too, that the, um, the, that the research, there is some good research that tells us that when they get past those activating events, that their symptoms drop dramatically, often to even below where they were before, because they get, they've started to learn a little bit of tolerance around the activation. I think it's very interesting that, you know, one of the things that you spoke about in terms of, you know, the PFA program is around not pathologizing what people are going through. And, you know, just trying to remind them that because of whatever they've experienced, their responses are very normal, you know, to an abnormal situation. That's correct. You know, just Absolutely. on with that idea, I mean, what would you say that, you know, the role of a psychological force theater includes and what does it not include? The role is really about what we call psychoeducation. So letting people know that they in fact may have these responses that they're considered common and that they will likely dissipate um, and that they're not likely going to develop a, a mental health problem. 
Uh, but we also want people to know that that look that everybody has a different recovery path and time frame. So to not compare their recovery with another person, um, to try and recognize what their signs and symptoms are, so that they can figure out how to best cope with them. So um, I've worked with people from many different countries, from many different types of incidents, whether it's from a natural disaster like a giant hurricane to 9-11 to uh, a bombing incident to child soldiers in, in uh, Uganda uh, to, to um, people who've been um, in explosions and bombs and, and in armed force areas. The number one complaint I hear over and over and over is people complain about sleeplessness, either not being able to fall asleep or not being able to stay asleep. And you know, when we don't get good sleep, our bodies don't repair and recover. Um, so we want people to know that recognize this is one of your symptoms because then you can do something about it. We have a whole list of tips that we can give people around how to get some sleep, even when they're struggling in the immediate aftermath or even long-term after trauma. So if they can identify the symptoms, they can do something about it. For those people who tend to have more anxiety and panic, we can teach them breathing exercises, stretching exercises, and what our colleagues at the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in the U.S. tell us are the, the least harmful things, right? Walking, being with others who understand and accept how you feel, writing, um, and then again, body movement, stretching, uh, breathing exercises, things that can just help us start to decrease the, the, the negative responses. Um, so, so if they can identify these things, then they can help themselves and learn. And my, 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 what I like to say to people is that everybody's affected by these events. You, you may not develop a mental illness, but you will be affected in some way and that you can mitigate them from getting worse. And that's the important thing, especially if you have good social supports, people who understand and accept how you feel rather than people who say something like, what, get over it, it's been three months already, or what, you're still worried about that, stop worrying, that's ridiculous. People who invalidate these things don't help us to recover. So you want people who say, oh, I'm sorry you're having a bad day, maybe we should just go to the movies today or take a walk and talk and do whatever you feel like, you know, just to acknowledge um, that people's feelings. So, so we want people to have good psychoeducation, learn some good coping skills, um, and also reach out for the resources that might be there to help them. And, and certainly social supports are one of those good resources. So, you know, another aspect is that, I don't know if you know, you must have noticed it, that there's a lot of psychological post aid programs which have come up online. So, you know, for instance, Coursera has the psychological first aid offered by Johns Hopkins. You have, you know, something similar on the Future Learn platform as well. So what tends to happen is a lot of times, you know, people will do these courses and they will start delivering their own psychological first aid programs. And, you know, I know from you, who, you know, you've been so active in this space of, you know, trauma training and disaster responses that, it's not anybody and everybody who can start delivering psychological first aid, similar to the mental health first aid course. So, you know, in your opinion and, you know, from your experience, who is qualified to deliver a BFA program? Well, that, that's a really good question too, Vedika, because there are two parts to training. One is to know the content and the other is also to be a good trainer. Um, and so we are very, um, uh, we're very, um, clear about the fact that people, first of all, need to have taken a formal psychological first aid training, because if they've taken a training that was developed by somebody who took a training, by somebody who took a training, by somebody who took a training, the validity and the, and the strength of the training can really dissipate. Um, and so you want some of the original authors. Now, like the, the World Health Organization has a version that is particularly geared towards refugees. That, that's a specialty, right? But um, the, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, who's developed the psychological first aid training, um, they have also made tailored versions for responders or special populations. And so you want to go back to as, as close as you can to your original authors, but you also should be a certified trainer to be able to then take the content. Now, 
I personally, I'm going to add a third dimension to that. I think the best trainers are the people who've used the model in the field. Now, I know there are people who are master trainers and who can get to learn content. But um, in my experience, when I go and train, the information comes alive when you can share how you have used the model in the field. And so I highly encourage people to go to take the formal training uh, with your verified authors, uh, get your CEUs, get your certificate, um, but also then uh, either partner with a master trainer or have become a master trainer yourself and someone who's used the model in the field because that's how people learn. We know this, that, that modeling, um, uh, taking scenarios and working them out and doing role play is how people really understand this work. Because if I said to you, okay, you just took the online course or you took a course from somebody who's never been in the field, what, what are you going to say when you come upon a refugee? Hmm. You're very unlikely to be able to answer that question very well, right? Um, so we strongly, strongly recommend to have the training with a verified psychological first aid trainer. Um, because that's where you really get your best, best experience of really knowing what to do when you're out there in the field. And I think you're really, you know, you're absolutely right, because, you know, when it comes to psychological first aid, almost in a similar way to mental health first aid, you're working with people who are really vulnerable. That's so, you know, right. just knowing the right things to say and, you know, just sort of being able to provide the immediate response, it's almost like giving them CPR right, in a way. It's like an emotional CPR, which is how a lot of times mental health first aid is looked at. So you need to have the skills to do it. And it Thank is you for that. Yeah. No, that's a great point, Vedika. And, it, and it's not to um, discount the skills of our trained psychiatrists, psychologists, or social workers. But what I say to those audiences are that this is very different than your traditional mental health treatment. That this is not, for example, in 9-11, I had many, many people tell me that they went to a psychiatrist after 9-11 and they were uh, so activated by everything that was going on. They were hypervigilant, they weren't sleeping, they were obsessive, and, and they were diagnosed as either bipolar or psychotic, and they were given psychiatric medications. And there's, now we understand that that can actually be harmful. And so we have to ask our, our traditional mental health providers, our psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, to put what they know kind of in a box and, and hold on to that when they need it, but that this is a very different way of inter intervening with people and a way to help mitigate the development of mental illness and not look to identify it. So that's the biggest difference. I think that's really interesting, you know, because um, I remember reading some studies recently around how they were measuring uh, you know, um, complicated grief, which is now a mental disorder in terms of prolonged grief disorder. And they were looking at PTSD responses amongst people, you know, who were refugees and children and adults at both. And I feel like, you know, sometimes just sort of understanding that, you know, some everyone's not going to cope the same way. So as you said, you know, like if it's a clinician who looks at the individual, they're going to really go as per, you know, like the DSM or the ICD criteria. But when it comes to a PFA, it sort of gives people that time and then decide, you know, whether this meets like a clinical diagnosis or is this just a normal stress reaction that they're having? That's right. And we had the privilege of working with Dr. Catherine Shear, who is the director of the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University, who's probably one of the few people that if, if anybody else has even really studied this to the extent that she has. And early on, she said to us that she, she wouldn't even look to diagnose somebody with complicated grief or a grief disorder until a year after the loss of a loved one. Um, because anything that we see in that time frame is considered normal grief, that, that if somebody weren't upset and having any signs or symptoms, we would be more concerned about them. But many of our cultures disregard grief. We don't recognize it. We don't acknowledge it. People might get two or three days off of work 
after a, an immediate family member, somebody they loved and cared for their whole lives have died, and then they're expected to go about their lives as if nothing happened. Um, and so she talks very much about that, that she wouldn't even consider a diagnosis until much later after the event, because we need to recognize and have the grief and allow people that. And I think it also ties in with, you know, something that you just mentioned earlier on coming back to the whole aspect of, you know, activating memories. So if we look at it in terms of, you know, whether it's been the refugee crisis and, you know, in like the last two, three years, we've seen repeated, um, you know, incidents, unfortunately, from different parts of the world. Or whether we even look at, you know, mass violence incidents, there's so many coming out that sometimes it's hard to ignore the activation, right? So even if someone's yeah. finished their grieving, let's say, of one year, you could have something which will reactivate those memories. I mean, I remember reading uh, post the Uvalde incident, a lot of, you know, survivors of Sandy Hook and the Columbine shooting coming out and say that, you know, this sort of refreshed everything that they went through. Yeah, yeah. How can you not? I mean, we 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 use the term closure, and I don't know who created the term, but I don't believe in it at all, mm -hmm. right? If if a member of my family, my immediate family, somebody that I love and cared about my whole life dies, I'm not going to get over it. I'm going to remember them for the rest of my life. I may adapt to the fact that they're no longer in my life, but I don't believe in closure. So of course we're going to remember and be activated. Um, you also bring uh, the good thing. Let me say the good thing about that is it's probably going to be temporary also. Right. As as we get past the reminder, we say, oh, whew, OK, that was hard. And I cried or I remembered or I did some kind of a ritual to help myself you know, cope with my feelings. But I can get back on with my life and care for my children and have some moments of joy again. But the other thing that you brought up, too, is that we are now in a state, especially with the COVID pandemic, on top of the climate change events that are causing huge problems like tsunamis and flooding in so many areas where there haven't been before, drought for severe long periods of time, in addition to the violence between the terrorism and the armed forces and the mass violence events, we are in this chronic disaster cycle and it's very difficult. People are exhausted from their fear and their anxiety and their grief. And of course, that being um, reminded of it constantly on television and on social media. So you bring up a very good point, Vedika. We are in a chronic state where we're being uh, activated by all these events. We try to settle ourselves down, get back to work, do what we need to do. Then there's another event. Um, so we actually have not had a lot of time, especially in the past three years, with the pandemic being another overlaid huge global disaster on top of everything else we're dealing with in our individual countries. And I think that's another thing that, you know, you mentioned about grief, I mean, before we move on, which I thought was interesting is, you know, the aspect of closure. And I think sometimes it's just about recognizing that, you know, maybe we need to learn to move forward with our grief rather than move on from it. Yes, yes, I, I, we're gonna hold on to it. I'm gonna hold on to the memories of my family members. I, I don't want to forget them, right? So I, I don't know what closure means. I think we get to this adaptation and that we are, human beings are species of ritual and habit, right? So we wanna remember them. So we either create a memorial or we light our candles or we look at pictures, whatever we can do to help us remember and to cope. Coming back to, you know, the various versions of PFA that you mentioned existed and, you know, you said that you have different tailor-made programs and approaches depending on, you know, who the population it's being applied to is. So, you know, how could you just tell us a little bit on how PFA could look different when applied to children versus adults, for instance? For sure. And if you speak with child specialists, you will always hear them say that adults tend to underestimate the effects that traumatic events have on children and what children need and what they even understand. And so there is a whole separate version for working with children and especially working with children in schools, right? Because most children are in school 
and their job is to do learning and to focus on that and to, to not have to be the ones who are repairing the community after an event. So there are all kinds of special um, recommendations around children that help us to realize, first of all, that we need to protect them from the horrible details. We're so used to seeing things on TV and listening to them on the radio and, and on social media, and it, it's damaging to their brains, to their developing brains. We, so we need to protect children. I have a good colleague, uh, Dr. Lynette Rintoul, who worked with us in the 9-11 response, and she would always say, and, and about the children, you know, there is a difference and that we have to recognize that difference. And we would always ask, well, we're training, do we lie to children? And it's so surprising. Over and over, I see these large audiences of mental health professionals and responders say, oh, no, we don't lie to children. Well, that's not true. We lie to them all the time, right? We tell them about these fictional characters and <laughs> Santa Claus is coming or the tooth fairy. You know, after a traumatic event is not the time to tell children horrible, gory details. We need to turn off the TV and restrict the social media that exposes or overexposes them to this material. What they need to know is that the adults are in charge, the adults are gonna take care of them and protect them, and that their job is to go to school and to learn. For those who are not in school yet under five, we have to be very cautious about our reactions because they will just mimic what their parents, their caretakers are experiencing. And so we have to pull ourselves together with the children who are not in school yet. Um, but with those who are in school, we have to keep our role. We have to protect them from being overexposed. We have to help them to focus on what their job is, which is to be in school and learning and learning to be with other children and to do the things that children do every day and to play. Their job is to play and to learn. Um, so I, I do highly, highly recommend that those who are working with children go into the uh, this special, you know, working PFA for children in schools. There are tons of worksheets, um, tip sheets, all different types of tools that you can download. They're free. Uh, they're in the public domain. You can copy them and distribute them to the children you're working with, to the families that you're working with. So we highly recommend you access those. So in terms of, you know, like these are some of the challenges around, you know, what the individual who's going to receive the first aid sort of experiences, but can you tell us a little bit more on, you know, what are the psychological first aiders, what are some challenges that they face when they go on ground and, you know, what are some concerns that they commonly see in the people that they're supporting? That's a, a great question because there are all kinds of challenges that we are faced with when we are on the ground working in the field. And they can be anything from a lack of resources to a lack of safety, um, to, to having the, the um, space that you need to work with people, to make sure that you're working with people who have food and water so that they can even take in what you're talking about. Um, then there are issues of things like um, a place to work and privacy. Language and culture are giant, giant issues. As much as we think we might know another culture, we can never understand all the unique aspects. Um, and so we know we're always going to be having to work very hard at closing the culture gap and making sure that we're addressing things that are important to that particular culture. And, you know, there's no universal definition of culture. So a culture can be a school, an ethnicity, a race, a business, a neighborhood. So we have to pay attention to those things. Then, of course, there's the issue of trust. You know, why are people going to trust strangers who are coming in to try and help them? And what is that community's experience with people coming in previously? Or especially if it's government, they might not be receptive at all. They may be afraid of government. They may be that their experience of government is government shuts them down or that people disappear when they talk to them or that mental health is punished. Um, and then of course, there's stigma. We see stigma across every every community we've ever been in. We don't, we don't like to talk about mental health. And we as mental health workers think we do a good job. 
people don't like us. <laughs> We're telling ourselves some, some story if we say that people like mental health workers. They don't want mental health workers to come in and say, oh no, go talk to my wife or my husband or go talk to my neighbor down the block, but no, I don't need it. Um, so we must approach people in a way that speaks to them and says, look, you know, I'm here to help understand what might work for you. This is what I've heard other people say helps for them, or this is what we know can stop a panic attack in really practical ways. And that's PFA is a very practical way of applying different techniques to work with community members who've been affected. It's interesting that, you know, you brought up the aspect of stigma and like, you know, cultural competence when it comes to providing care. Because a lot of times if people don't feel understood or if they find that, you know, that their frame of reference is very different from the person trying to help them, there will be, you know, a little bit of a communication gap. So just sort of telling people that you're aware that there are going to be differences, but you're still going to try to do your best to help them out. I think that really would help people a lot, just knowing that they are supported, they are validated, even though, yes. You know, someone doesn't entirely come from the same background as they do. True, true. I think it's being honest. Like you said, I know I'm not going to get this right all the time. And I've made faux pas. You know, I, I remember talking about um, helping people to, to function and children to function individually in a couple of communities in several different countries in, in Sierra Leone and in Uganda. And, and people looked at me like, what, what is she talking about? Because, right, they're a, they're a collective culture that they don't understand the idea of individualism the way that we have it in the West. So that, that was just one example. But what I've also learned, which has humbled me too, um, absolutely, Vedika, is that, uh, you know, we can't go in thinking that we know all the answers either. That when we go in honestly and say, I don't know enough about your culture. This is what I know about this disaster or this traumatic event and what might help. But it does need to be tailored to your behaviors and your culture. What, what's the culture's understanding of health versus illness? What's their understanding of mental health versus mental illness? It may be very different. What's their, what's their concept of recovery? Does it mean, you know, being in a room for, for months or weeks and being in bed and quiet and having people take care of you? Does it mean grieving and crying every morning and lighting the candles? What is the perception of what, what recovery is? So we need to look at all those things, but allow people from within the culture, work with the local leaders. What works best? What's the ritual that would be meaningful? What's the language that's important and helpful or not helpful? Um, and what's the best approach? You, you may go into a culture where it's not even appropriate for you to approach a, a, uh, anyone who's not an elder, uh, certainly not to approach a child without asking permission from the parents. In some cultures, you have to approach the men before approaching the women. And this is not a time for us to say, well, my belief system or my culture, we do this. That's not going to help the culture that you're going in to work with. You need to understand their culture and what their norms are and comply with them. Which is, it's really interesting, right? Because I think even as a psychological first aider in that case, you have to learn to sort of park aside, you know, your frame of reference, your biases, and then move forward because, you know, and when you come from a place of, you know, genuine concern or empathy, I think that is something which people universally are able to pick up on. That, you know, this Agreed. is someone who cares. Yes, agreed. And and they'll give you a little bit of, of grace as well if you do make mistakes. Um, but again, if you come in and you try to Im impose your beliefs, or your cultural ways upon them, that's not going to help with their recovery. You want them to recover. If they decide to do things differently as a result of this emergency or disaster later on, that's fine. But it, you, you can't be... Um, proselytizing uh, about your beliefs to someone uh, who's in a recovery phase. And it's not certainly not appropriate to do so. That is very, that's really true. And you know, since we're talking about the aspect of recovery, uh, when it comes to someone, you know, with an external injury, and you know, if you patch them up, you can see that they're recovering. But when it comes to, you know, assisting someone as a psychological first aid, or especially with the emotional wounds, how do we sort of judge the outcomes of that? Mm, it's a great question, Vedican. I, I have my own rule that seems to hold after these last 20 or so years. 
um, because everybody does move on the path of recovery differently than others. And so I look at, in, in my mind, it's this image. If, they're, if they've fallen off the path and are on the rocks and laying down there and not moving and not getting better, that's a problem. So I want them to be able to tell me that even if it's a little bit, that the, some of the symptoms have subsided or that they're feeling a little bit better or they were able to do a little bit more. Now, and usually that's what we hear. Well, I'm still feeling this isn't good, that's good, but I was able to you know, play with my child today or is able to go out um, as opposed to, and you'll, you'll hear this, and it, so it's very obvious as opposed to, no, I don't feel any better at all. I feel worse or nothing is changing or I'm still having the same problems. That to me is somebody who's stuck. They're on the rocks, they're not on the path. And I wanna say, okay, now what do we need to do? Is this somebody who's so vulnerable or has previously had a mental illness that they're having a reoccurrence that this has made them much more at risk and they're actually in a mental illness where maybe they do then need to go to a mental health professional for a formal assessment. Maybe they've previously had a depression and this just brought them back there. And no matter what we do, the psychological first aid or crisis counseling or short-term you know, interventions just aren't helping. Um, so I want people to say, even if it's a little bit, that they're feeling a little bit better, that they see a hope in the future, that they're starting to feel better, they can see a path, they have, they have a, a sense that they can get better, um, as opposed to somebody who just can't report anything at all. So that's kind of my cheat sheet that I use. And, and it seems to hold uh, throughout all these years with different different uh, cultures and people across the country or different yeah. countries, I should say. I think that's interesting because, you know, like in terms of that's one thing that people often talk about in terms of mental health recovery, right? That because it's so invisible, how mm. do I know I'm doing better? which also sometimes adds to the stigma why people avoid seeking help because they can't, they don't see the signs of, you know, getting better. So just sometimes telling them that, you know, two people are gonna recover differently, even if you've been through the exact same disaster, even if you started out with the exact same responses, we're all gonna cope very differently and sort of giving them that understanding, but also knowing that as a psychological first aider can really help in the work that you're gonna be, you know, doing going ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And too, that even if they have some symptoms, they now have some skills to help themselves. So if they are somebody who tends to get rapid heartbeat, which is a very common symptom, especially in the immediate aftermath, and they keep getting activated and we teach them some breathing exercises or some cognitive uh, insertion, some, some messaging or thinking that helps to keep that down. They'll say, well, yes, I still get activated, but the box breathing really worked or I've created my messaging that says, oh, this is just a reminder, I'm okay, I'm safe. And so if they can, even if they get activated, they have the skills to control that and di dissipate that emotion, that, that's also a sign of recovery. So, you know, when we're working in community-based things, sometimes we're gonna come across people from, you know, marginalized groups and, you know, marginalized ethnic groups or people from the LGBTQ plus community. So how do we think, you know, we can better reach out to them? Because it comes back to the frame of reference aspect, right? That we may not entirely get their culture, but we can still be kind. So how can we do that? Yes, in, in our large, large programs where we hire a number of people to provide psychological first aid, we always want to work with people from within the communities. Um, because they best understand what's the what's the entrance, you know, how do we enter that community and, and what does recovery look like to them and what are their coping skills? What helps them the most? Um, so I, I think it's almost impossible to be effective in working with special populations or unique populations or certain cultures if we don't work with folks who are from within the culture. It also empowers them because they can be active in helping their own community. 
um, and they're much more accepted. There's a little less stigma when it's somebody from within your own community. And that goes back to your point of saying, we want everybody to be trained in psychological first aid so that if something happens and their community is effective, they can say, yes, I can participate and I can help my own community. And I think it also comes down to, as you said, you know, a lot of the representation matters, right? Like this person yes. looks like me, I can connect to this person. That might also remove a few of the barriers in terms of communicating with someone else. That's certainly our hope, Vedika. Now, again, we can never make assumptions, right? Everybody's different, but we make our best attempts to uh, have community members. You know, some communities do better without outside help because they're so good at helping each other. If you think of the old idea of barn raising, right? If somebody moved into the neighborhood and needed a barn in the rural community, the whole community would come together and help them. Or if there were a fire or a flood, everybody would get together. And so sometimes when a lot of outside people come in or a lot of money comes in, then there's the issues of inequity and who gets left out. And so we know that communities really can help each other best. So if we can help them to do that, that's great. Um, but we certainly can't do that without their input. And, you know, I mean, just to wrap up this really interesting conversation that we've had, and I know you've touched upon various aspects of psychological first aid. I want to ask you that what would be, you know, your parting words to anybody who's watching this or listening to this? who might be having a hard time with their mental health right now? Oh, it's a wonderful question, Vedika. And really, I would say to anyone, anytime you have any symptoms that you're uncomfortable with, it's such a gift to be able to go and receive support, mental health treatment or psychological first aid, if you've been through some kind of a traumatic event, there's no reason to suffer access mental health supports, it's a smart thing to do and it helps. And no matter what anyone else says or feels about it, your mental health is yours alone. You deserve to have good treatment, to have contentment in your life and moments of happiness as you go through all these ups and downs. And so we encourage you to take advantage of the fact it's, it's such a gift to be able to get support and start to feel better uh, so that you can enjoy your life. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for all your time, for all your insights that you've shared. I know it's really going to help a lot of people better understand psychological first aid. And you know, it's going to hopefully motivate more people to sign up for the program so that they can better support communities as well as look after themselves. And as you said, it's all about empowering people, right? To feel that they can they have it in them to recover that and that they deserve to recover. So promoting hope, promoting recovery. Absolutely, Vedika. And thanks to you and Kangaroo Minds for taking the time for looking at this really important subject and for inviting me here today. No. I, I appreciate that. And I hope that the audience finds that this was helpful. It's been an absolute pleasure. And lastly, for anyone who's watching or listening to this, we hope, you know, that you always remember that there is help out there and there is hope out there. So if you're having a hard time, please reach out and know that it gets better. And even as Dr. April said, you do not have to suffer in silence. You don't have to go through this alone. So it will get better. So till next time, please stay well and stay healthy. Thank you.